The Fitness Reborn podcast is a companion piece to Renaissance Fitness personal training. This podcast is to serve as educational and entertainment purposes only. It does not in any way constitute as medical advice. If you have a medical concern, please seek out your provider. Hello and welcome. This is the latest episode of the Fitness Reborn podcast. My name is Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training, where we put movement ahead of workouts. And my guest today is Cheryl I Love. She is a speaker, an author, a martial artist, and what she calls a recovering physical therapist. And we're going to get into that a little bit more as we talk. But Cheryl, thanks for joining me on your Sunday. Well, thank you for having me, Sean. I really appreciate it. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, yeah. So like I told you uh, before we started recording here, like when I came across you, your tagline there grabbed me pretty much right away. So it was all the things that really speak to me. So you're a physical therapist. So obviously, you're interested in movement. Um, you practice martial arts. I like that a lot. Uh, you have a warrior um, philosophy, which resonates with me a lot. I've, I've written, I've read quite a bit about that kind of thing. And, you know, it's just kind of all like came together in a really brilliant way. And I said, well, I got to talk to her if she'll talk to me. So now here you are. <laughs> well, thank you so much. That that makes me sound like a really amazing person. So thanks. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> All right, so I like to uh, take things kind of back to the beginning here, so people know just where we're uh, where we're coming from and why we're talking right now. Because I know things about you, but maybe no one else listening right now really does. So let's mm -hmm. go back to the beginning here. What got us here talking about you and everything you do today? Oh boy! So did you just want to give you a little bit more of a background? Yeah. Of my okay. Well, I actually started out physical therapy as my second career. My first career was respiratory therapy, so I was a critical care specialist, work in, worked in a variety of different hospital settings for 17 years before I decided to go back um, to school and get my master's degree in physical therapy. And one of the things that really surprised me when I was in physical therapy school and then graduated is I didn't like it. I mean, it was like, it wasn't what I expected. You know, it was like, Here's the patient, here's the diagnosis, here's the ICD-9 code, here's the protocol. You got five sessions, and if the patient doesn't get better, well, you know, they're either doing something wrong or, you know, they're incurable. And that really bothered me because when I was in my mid-30s, I was declared uncurable. I was a chronic pain patient for two and a half years, and as a respiratory therapist, I did everything that my doctors and my physical therapists told me to do because I was in that Western medicine mindset. This is, you do everything you're told, you take the medications, you do the exercises and the stretches, even though they were kind of stupid and they didn't really work for me. But you know, I was doing everything. And after two and a half years, I was getting worse and worse and worse and spiraling down into this horrible vortex of pain and spasm and dysfunction until finally one of my doctors told me I would never be able to do my grocery shopping and my laundry all in the same day because the arthritis in my spine was so severe, I would end up being bedridden. And then she advised me to start applying for disability because I was going to need it. And I would never have the life that I had before, uh, the life that I wanted. Um, but don't worry about it because they were going to take care of me. Well, I didn't like that. And I went home, I hit rock bottom, and a few days later, I had this epiphany, this mental head-smacking moment. It's like, wait a minute, this isn't up to them to figure out. This is up to you. I'm the one that had to figure it out for myself, and I was the one that had to 
heal myself, which is kind of daunting and overwhelming at first, but I stopped all the medications. I stopped doing the stretches and the exercises. I fired my entire medical team, much to their chagrin, and I just taught myself how to move more efficiently in a pain-free range. I wasn't a PT, obviously, but I was a dancer, and I had studied a tremendous amount of Pilates by that point in my life. Uh, by the way, I was in my mid-30s. So I knew enough of movement to be able to try and just dissect um, a lot of the Pilates mat exercises and just take them in a gentle way and really pay attention to how my body felt when I was doing certain movement patterns. You know, some things would exacerbate my back pain. It's like, okay, check, we're not doing that. Things that I was able to do that made my pain, you know, diminish, I did that. So instead of that cookie cutter, here are all your exercises, do this, I actually created my own you know, therapy and my own path to healing. The only thing I added was acupuncture, which was absolutely magical. So I had already been planning on trying to get into PT school. So after about nine months, I was completely pain-free. I was stiff. I was overweight, but I didn't have any pain. And it was at that point that I was accepted into physical therapy school. So then the next two years of PT school was intense studying, being in classes from 8 in the morning until 5 in the afternoon, studying at the library for another 4 to 5 hours before I went home, 12 hours on Saturdays and Sundays, being at the school, either in the dissection lab, in the library, studying. So that did nothing for my health and fitness either. So then finally, when I graduated PT school, and I really hated the work that we were doing. I really didn't like it. So I had another one of those mental head-smacking moments, and I realized, hey, I can go out on my own and start my own practice, which is what I did. So it was an alternative practice. It wasn't traditional PT. I specialized in um, Pilates-based rehab and conditioning. I had already taken two professional trainings. And eventually I added another movement modality called Feldenkrais, and even as I was going on through my journey of exploration and healing, I discovered this martial art, and I would take some of the principles of martial arts as well and teach them to my clients. And I would always tell my clients, look, I am not going to fix you, but I will teach you how to fix yourself. It's a great story. So one thing that I did notice while you were speaking is that when you're going through your own backstory, and I've heard this a lot from people, is that they got pretty they got dismissed by medical science pretty early, and the unwillingness to accept that as the final answer is kind of what took them down the path that they are now. So, in your opinion, why does that seem to be such a common thing that, you know, medical science feels like it hits a wall and it's just like, well, sorry, this is just what your life is. And here's this list of limitations that you're going to be stuck with for the rest of your existence. Well, so are you asking me, um, you know, why is that happening from the medical professional standpoint or from the uh, air quotes patient standpoint or, or both? Cause I've been on both sides. Or both sides, though, since you have experience with either side, why don't you tell me why you're, it's happening from the patient standpoint and from the medical, um, the, the medical industry? 
Okay, well, I will address, um, you know, my physical therapy training. Mm -hmm. And I told you I was a respiratory therapist prior to becoming a PT. And in my respiratory therapy training, it was a four-year program that I went to. One of the things that they really, um, they really, really emphasized was critical thinking and to question everything. Now, you're talking life and death a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So if you make a mistake or if you're given an order and you think, yeah, I don't think this is the right thing to do, we were encouraged to question it because it could save a patient's life or not. And but but, you know, we had a very narrow scope of of um, practice, which was cardiopulmonary, you know, respiratory function. Yeah, kidney function. We looked at that too. But of course, musculoskeletal, we were in this very narrow field, but highly specialized. And I think a lot of times that's what happens even with physicians, and they have different specialties. So they really hone in on their specialty, but they don't look at the big picture. And I think that's really what happens a lot of times. It's like, okay, you know, this person has pain. You know, we do all the tests. We can't figure out why they have pain. Ah, well, we don't know. So here are the medications. Rather than looking deeper into it, maybe it's the way um, the person is moving. Maybe it's their mindset. So there's a really huge scope that they're missing out on. So they just throw up their hands and say, well, you're on your own or you're always going to be like this. And I think part of it is because, again, they have that limited um, education in that area. Or they also have limited time. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, as a, when I started as a respiratory therapist, and I'm dating myself, um, I graduated in 1978, so we were really focused on patient care. And I have seen since 1978, as the years were going by, I saw the focus shifting from patient care to business and making money and profits and corporations taking over. So from the physician standpoint people who are treating the patients, they do not have the autonomy and the freedom to treat people or the time that they did before. So that's from their standpoint. Um, From a patient standpoint, when you're in pain, you're hurting, you're frightened, you know, you want somebody to help you. So when you go to the medical professionals and you say, this is what's happening to me, you know, why is this happening? Oh, please help me and get me out of pain. You are actually turning over your personal authority to somebody else. You are handing somebody else your personal power. You are giving it away. And that makes you incredibly vulnerable. And that sets you up for what happened to me. So my advice to anybody who is going through something like that would be to really question, you know, your professional, your health professional. And if they don't like that, find somebody else. You really need to look into alternative methods of health and healing because there are so many modalities out there that are natural, that are um, really encourage the body to heal itself, and the body wants to heal itself. The body has that capacity. We just have to find it, and it's a little different for everybody. We're not—it's not cookie cutter, you know, type of therapy. All right, right. So. What got you into martial arts there? So that was kind of a, I mean, lots of people do martial arts, but they don't really consider it a form of therapy per se, even though there's obviously therapeutic benefits that come from martial arts, both physically, spiritually, um, 
cognitively everything. I mean, it's kind of a, it's a package deal. You get a lot when you take a Taekwondo or a karate class. So, mm -hmm. but not everyone really thinks about it. The things most people think about is like, it's something to get my kids into, you know, three times a week to keep them active and to teach them mm -hmm. some, maybe some discipline. It's fun to do. You know, everyone, every kid likes to rough, rough around and, you know, you know, act like a badass and, you know, mm -hmm. Act, maybe act out some of the things they see in movies. I, I mean, movies play a big part in how uh, Eastern practices got popular in the West, just mm -hmm. watching Bruce Lee movies or things like that. So, but you actually, you took it a step further and you actually knew what it was therapeutically and mm -hmm. everything else. So what got you into it? Well, it didn't start out that way. Um, I didn't see the therapeutic benefits at first. It's a really long story, but basically when I was 44 and I was, you know, I was on top of the world, you know, I had lost the weight that I'd gained when I'd had my chronic pain syndrome. And when I was in PT school, I was very active. I was, you know, feeling good, ideal weight, taken ballet class like five times a week and, um, you know, had my own office. I was on top of the world. Well, I had a, another medical catastrophe. It was a trauma, a medical trauma, and it was bad. It was really, really bad. And I tried to get help once it happened and to report it, you know, like, because I thought, you know, this, this person cannot practice medicine anymore. It was actually that bad. Um, basically, I was shut down. You're just exaggerating. You're looking for money. You know, you're, you're making this up. You know, I mean, it was really terrible the way people treated me, you know, the people who are supposed to be helping you. And it was like the same slap in the face. Here I am, I'm a medical professional, and I got slapped around again. And so what I did was I took that trauma, I just stuffed it deep down inside, like a lot of us do, and it was probably um, just pasted a big smile on my face and pretended everything was just fine. Well, just a few months after that, I went to a new acupuncturist, and he was recommended by one of my clients. And... I trusted her opinion because she had, you know, very high standards of who she ever went to. So I go to this guy and the first time he's putting needles in my legs, he got a very far away look on his face. And he said, you know, with your legs and my coaching, I could teach you how to kill with these things. So I'm lying on the table going, who thinks like this, let alone says it out loud. And then I'm going, where's my purse? Cause I'm going to you know, grab my purse. I'm getting out of here. This guy's absolutely insane. But he literally had me pinned to the table. I couldn't go anywhere unless I wanted to try and get up off the table and go running out the door with needles sticking out all over me. So I just says, no, thank you. You know, I'm no interest in martial arts because I had absolutely no interest in martial arts. It was never in my DNA. It was never on my radar. Um, my father, interestingly enough, was a black belt in, in karate. He had five daughters, so he figured he needed to have some skills. Um, and he always used to try and get uh, me and my sisters to go to the gym and work out with him. And it was like, oh God, you, nobody's, you know, we're not going to do that. Well, after about a year, the trauma just came spewing out of me. And I went to my acupuncturist because I just knew intuitively that, you know, he would listen to me and take me seriously, which of course he did. Um, but once he heard the story, you know, and then he started treating me not only with the acupuncture, Chinese herbs, all kind of shiatsu. Uh, once he heard the story, his campaign to get me on the mat went into high gear. But I kept saying no. And he kept telling me, he says, you don't understand there's an incredible healing energy and healing power in the martial arts. A lot of the things that you already said. 
And I kept saying no, because I couldn't see that. And I didn't understand how hanging out in a smelly dojo with a bunch of sweaty men was going to make me feel any better. And he just kept, he, man, he was like a dog with a bone. He wouldn't let it go, wouldn't let it go. So finally, it took him another two years. So this was a total of three years. And he wore me down. And not only that, I was at a point where I had no place else to go. I mean, I was so low that, you know, I had to try something. I was desperate. So I said, okay, well, I will try a few classes to learn a few techniques and uh, and to prove to you how much I'm going to hate it, and then I'm going to quit. Well, I didn't hate it. <laughs> I fell in love with the art. I fell in love with the training, and I really fell in love with the sense of empowerment that I got from training, even though it took a few years, you know, to really feel that warrior spirit start to rise and come up, you know, inside of me. So 10 years later, I became his first female black belt. What, you, what was it about martial arts training that you just did not like so much? Go, even going back to your childhood when your father was so into it too, was it just like, did it just like seem like there's something, a, a world that you did not belong to? Like you're stepping into a man's world there and it was just kind of, you don't want to feel like the, like the odd one out. Bing, 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 bing. Give that man a cigar. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> I mean, I'm a fussy girl. I've always been a fussy girl, even when I was very, very little. You know, always loved, you know, dresses. And then, you know, as I got older, makeup. And, and you know, then tutus and toe shoes and Pilates and pedicures. Hanging out in a smelly gym, like I said, with a bunch of men just did not appeal to me. And then you had to do things like yell and scream and, and punch and hit which meant they, would, they were going to be doing it to me. And it was like, this does not appeal to me at all. I am never going to do this. Um, but I was fortunate enough, and I think you know, this is just the way the world works, uh, to put me in a place at the right time, the right place, and the right dojo with the right people. And most of the time, I was the only woman in class. Although, Mark, once I said I'm going to take some classes, I mean, he was over the moon, my sensei. He was so excited. I said, but I'm really worried. I don't want to be the only woman in class. Oh, no. I have plenty of female students. I even have higher-ranking female students. They'll be happy to take you under their wing and teach you the way of the ninja. You don't worry about that at all. Okay. So I walk in for my first class. Not only was I the only woman in class, I was the only woman within like a three-mile radius. <laughs> and so I had just come from ballet class, and my no. hair was still in a bun. And I'm walking in going, where are the women? So he either exaggerated, which he is prone to do, or flat out lied. <laughs> but even that first class, I mean, I was terrified. Sean, I was terrified for the first two years I was taking class. But I still kept, kept going. Yeah. yeah. Because there was something about it that was so compelling. There was something in it that was, I call it seductive. It, it's a very mm. seductive art, and it just draws you in, or at least drew me in. And even after my first class, um, I giggled all the way home. And I hadn't giggled in a long time. And I just, every month, I kept signing the check for my tuition, and nobody was more surprised than I was. And then as I started eventually climbing up the ranks, the guys would walk past me and they would whisper a word and they would say, Kyunichi. Like, well, that sounds kind of dirty. What's that? You know, and they'd say, Kyunichi. And that's actually the female Japanese warrior. 
And I thought, well, they can't be talking about me because I'm really no warrior. And uh, basically, yeah, I am. And I believe that that warrior spirit is in each and every one of us just waiting to come out and be released. And for those of you who are listening and saying, warrior, no, we don't want to be warriors because warriors are about fighting and warfare and violence and confrontation and conflict. And it couldn't be further from the truth. A warrior has a very gentle heart and a compassionate spirit. And we love, we love peace and harmony. And we don't want to fight, but don't push the limit. Mm, there you go. <laughs> it's hitting the nail on the head right there. So um, going back to your father. So I did, I did go through your website little bit and i saw a very touching story about your father you wrote in your blog about, about and when he was a boy and yes. he immigrated to the states from czechoslovakia what well, was czechoslovakia i should say um and just kind of like binding that together with other things i read about you in your same blog or whatever yeah your blog and you were relating an earlier story about how you writing your first book and how the perseverance and the stubbornness is what got you through that. <laughs> and so here's your father mm. showing the same kind of traits that got him through, you know, being an immigrant, not knowing the language, being, I think I read a boy of 12 in first grade. Yeah. You know, a boy of 12 in first grade, talk about alienation. Yeah. And you're, you're a giant among all these little people mm -hmm. and they can do nothing but torture you because mm -hmm. you can't respond because they don't understand what you're saying. And they, you could scream at them to the moon and they won't care. They'll just laugh at you more. It means right. nothing to them. But, um, yeah. So I'm kind of thinking, ha, huh, I see a, I see, I see a trend here because he did, he did rise above it. He did go into the service. He did make a, a name for himself and a life for himself. He raised five daughters. I can't imagine that. I have one. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know what my father would call you? What? Amateur. Ah, well, yeah, that's okay. I'll keep my amateur status for life. That's fine. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So do you think that that really informed your, uh, informed your personality and your development later in life as you were as an adult dealing with all these things that you did go through? Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for bringing that up. It's like, wow, people do read my blog <laughs> it's mm -hmm. out there. But yeah, I mean, he had a remarkable story. And even, um, you know, at the very beginning, he, my, my grandparents brought him over when he was a year old. And then a year later, he had a near fatal accident, was in mm -hmm. the hospital for six months. I mean, and then, of course, um, you know, you read the story, but the medical staff, when they finally were able to communicate with him and they realized my dad was going to recover, to recover completely, they recommended he go back to a clean environment, mm -hmm. go back to Europe you know, where they had family and they had, you know, family help and clean air, clean water, instead of the highly polluted sooty environment of Western Pennsylvania and the small little steel town on the Ohio River. So he grew up, you know, in Czechoslovakia and he had some amazing stories. And, you know, once somebody's gone, you're like, oh, I wish I would have asked him more. But he was actually raised, um, it was probably 20 miles from the Ukraine border. Mm -hmm. And as 
things were heating up in Eastern Europe, that he remembered watching the Ukrainian soldiers training, like right next to the farm, and he would just watch them. And as he said, and they weren't the good guys. So it's just really, it's an incredible story. And especially then coming from that environment, going back to Western Pennsylvania in that sooty, horrible, you know, dirty industrial environment, rather than the clean farm in the country, you know, but he managed to survive and thrive. And even the story of the kids making fun of him and he had a temper. And of course he wanted to beat the crap out of them, but instead of using his fists, he used his brain. So he always found a way out of a problem and a solution, you know, no matter what it was that he was facing. And yeah, I think that that's where I got it. I mean, Everybody, you know, says, I'm so much like my mother. I look like my mother. Um, my mother was also incredibly, incomparably stubborn, mm. but not quite as much as my dad. So I was surprised to, to understand how much of my father I really have inside of me. It's a little scary. <laughs> well, I think it was a it was a very uh, inspiring story. And you know, you. obviously a great tribute to your dad because... You know, it was written in the context of the 4th of July, um, yeah. but even beyond that, it's a great story. It would be a great story in and of itself. Thank so, you. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so, okay, we have a medical trauma here. You had post-traumatic stress disorder that came from that, leads you to an acupuncturist, leads you into martial arts. Now, all of this obviously is culminating in what will eventually be your own private practice. So when was the light bulb moment saying, ha, this can really, this can really help people. This can really take off as a much more civilized form of treatment than mm -hmm. conventional physical therapy can really offer. Because I agree. I mean, the, the medical profession is, it's very, um, very sort of sterile in the way they have ways of doing things. They mm -hmm. check off boxes. And you're right, and it's really kind of the nature of the beast itself. It's not the participants. The participants would probably do other things, too. They'd probably venture a little bit further into things mm -hmm. if they had the time, if they had the leeway, if they had the freedom. But then, you know, doing that would mean stepping out of that game like you did and going off on your own and, right, and walking your own path. And mm -hmm. that's for a number of reasons, a lot of them are probably not prepared to do that, even though they probably would desperately want to, because they really do want to help people. Right. You know? So uh, what was the jumping off point? Well, actually, the jumping off point was before that trauma. Okay. The jumping off point was uh, I had been practicing as a traditional PT for about two and a half years. And like I said, absolutely hating it. Um, and especially when I graduated, that was in 96. And we were going through a lot of insurance changes, Medicare changes, um, managed care changes and stuff. So there were too many physical therapists and not enough jobs. So the jobs that were available to new grads, I mean, ugh, it was just so bad that, you know, I would come home from work every day and I'd go, what have I done to myself? I mean, this is terrible. And then I would keep getting hours cut and, you know, it was just horrible until I was actually recruited by um, a, a community college in Denver here that wanted me to come on staff as a critical, as a um, clinical instructor. 
for respiratory therapy. And I'm like, wait a minute, I haven't done RT in six years. I really don't think you want me teaching your students. And they said, no, these are brand new students. So you wouldn't be going into critical care, which is a good thing. And I, so I did that. And as I was doing that, I realized how far out of my, not only my comfort zone, but my realm of possibilities that I was trying to make it as a physical therapy in traditional practice. And it was during a horrible, horrible meeting. I wanted to just, well, it was gut-wrenchingly boring. I was hating everything about my, my life and my, my work. And that's when I got that light bulb moment. You can do this on your own. You can go out on your own and offer something different to the public that I wished I had had when I was going through my pain uh, syndrome. So that's what it was. That was that light bulb moment. And so I started out small, just rented a small little studio, uh, you know, with one little reformer and seeing clients one-on-one. -on -one. And from there it took off. And I had my practice for 18 years and closed it in May of 2017. I still work with people online and I still work with some people one-on-one, -on -one, um, like at their homes or whatever. And I teach a couple of classes too. So that's what I'm doing. All right. So what would you say is kind of your overarching philosophy towards how you would treat someone who, you know, has movement issues, let's just say in general movement issues, like they have some sort of, you know, inhibition, like stiff joints or something like that. I mean, because a lot of people I've spoken to, they have something that kind of encapsulates everything they believe. They kind of, you know, they've taken it to maybe one sentence or one phrase or something like that. And, you know, like you, you're drawing from all different types of sources. I know I do, mm -hmm. you know, I try to expand my, my sphere of knowledge as much as I possibly can, because I know just working within for my own clients, just working within the confines of personal training. However, that is really defined. And it's not even that clearly defined because it's not like physical therapy. It's not regulated. Right. There's not a high a barrier of entry into the, personal training world, mm -hmm. um, you, you don't even necessarily need the certification. It just looks much better if you do. Right. Um, but so in that way, it's more liberating because you can just kind of expand the field as much right. as you want, but I'm always drawing from different sources. I'm always trying to learn from people who aren't necessarily trainers because I think it might benefit from me. Mm -hmm. And I have my own philosophy, as you heard at the top of the show, movement over workouts. Mm -hmm that's open-ended it's open for interpretation but i have my own interpretation mm -hmm. um so what would you say is yours well mine is very much similar to yours okay. it's to work smarter not harder and especially in you know as we mature you know the things that we're told about the um I'm using air quotes again, the normal aging process really isn't true. I mean, mm -hmm. even when I was in the midst of that pain syndrome and, you know, everybody was saying, well, you're getting older. What do you expect? You're really close to 40. And it's like, oh, you know, if this is what the rest of my life is, I don't want it, you know? And right. here I am, this, that was 30 years ago. If I had listened to the experts if I had followed along and been a good little soldier, a good little patient, and did everything they told me to, and stayed there and accepted that chronic pain patient label, where would I be right now? It's kind of question. scary to think about. No, it's kind of scary. Yeah, go ahead. And what and was you're saying the movement rather than workouts? How did we learn how to move when we were babies and children? 
Nobody gave us little baby barbells and said, okay, do 10 reps. And <laughs> one hand here, one hand here. Move your pelvis this way, turn your head, and you're going to roll over in your crib. We did it through exploration. Exploring our environment, playing with movement, playing with, you know, other children as we got older. That's how we learned how to move. And then once we got to school, it was like, you know, what we're fully ambulatory and independent. And everybody's like, okay, now sit down and shut up because we're going to have to teach you. You have to learn. Prior to that, all of our learning was organic. And it was through self-exploration and really understanding our bodies and how we moved and how we interacted with our environment and other people. Now we're in school. We have to sit down, shut up, and we're going to tell you, you know, when you can go outside and play. And then that time that we went outside and played got narrower, more and more narrow until, you know, okay, well, we had organized sports, maybe dance or gymnastics or something like that. And then we had coaches and teachers who were telling us how to move. You have to do it this way, the right way, the wrong way. And then by the time we finish school and we're out on our own and we're so far away from that playful spirit of learning how to, or just playing and just moving. It's like, we have to get on the treadmill. We have to use this, do these weights. This is what we do for healthy workouts, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not true. Some people hate going to the gym, you know, or, or they'd rather, you know, most people hate going to the gym. This is what I've come to learn. You know, the, those of us who really get, who really look forward to it, who think it's just the best time of our day, that is a rare animal. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, there's like, we think that there's nothing left to us for us to do. You know, you either go to the gym or you're a bad person. You know, you go to the gym and you have 18 or 20 year old, you know, uh, trainers t trying to tell lift more, lift more. That's the way you get back into shape and you're ripping your joints to shreds. But there's another way of doing it. That's basically simple. And you just said it, it's movement mm -hmm. and to keep moving. And I like to tell people that I am a physical therapist who hates exercise and thinks that chocolate is food because it <laughs> is. But you know, if you find something that you really love to do, you know, it, Tai Chi, yoga, you know, dance, hiking, walking, swimming, it doesn't matter what it is, you find something that you really love, you know, your body loves it, your brain loves it, you're, it's just, you meet people, or if you're a loner and you want to do activities alone, there are things you can do, there's always something that really resonates with you that you're going to stick with and make you a happier, healthier person and fit. Right, exactly right. The, uh, so since we uh, were talking about, you know, people, well, in general, people who don't like going to the gym, but right, that's also especially true when people get to be somewhat older and, you know, it's an intimidating environment. You see lots of young, great looking people everywhere and they're, they're lifting, they're grunting, they're running, you know, it's just, you know, and you do have that kind of um, psychological prison that you're kind of locked into where you think that, oh, because you're 60 years old, then this, you're supposed to start breaking down. This is the this is the slow descent into what will be eventually be death, and <laughs> that that is how people that is how people look at it. I mean, I've heard people in my own family tell me that. I've said, you know, just like you know, it's like the older I get, the crankier I get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I've seen people their age and older who don't have that who don't have that attitude, and they are a much different person. Yes, they they know they can't do everything that they could do when they were twenty, but that doesn't really matter. And so 
I know for myself here, I was like, when I work with older people and I do work with people who are my age and older, and you know, I'm 39 years old and getting into that level here where I do know that strength tends to really drop off at about the 40 year mark, which is why I think it's even more important promoting this idea of free radicalism, where you're just kind of moving, just encourage movement. And I think that helps older people, especially, don't you think? Oh, gosh, absolutely. I have a great story that when I was, um, after I had my office, I did go back and start moonlighting at a, um, they call it a sniff skilled nursing facility, uh, mm -hmm. just to, you know, for some extra money. And one day I saw, you know, I was in the gym and the, the building was built around, there was like a courtyard right in the center of the building. The building was around it. And I saw this gentleman out in the courtyard and he was with a puppy, a chocolate lab puppy that was one of the other PT's puppy. She would bring him into work. And so he's bending down and he's throwing the ball and the dog would bring it back and he'd bend down. So they're playing ball. And, I, you know, I love dogs. And I was just watching and smiling. And one of the PT's was nudging another one and pointed uh, to the guy out in the, in the courtyard. And I said, well, who is this guy? Who's, is he a visitor? Who's he visiting? And they said, no, he's a patient. And I said, he's a patient? He was in better shape than most of the staff. What's he doing here as a patient? And they said, well, he checked himself into the facility to get some strength because he's going to be celebrating his 100th birthday in a couple of weeks. Oh. And I was like, wow. And they said every single morning when he wakes up, you know, he makes his own bed, he grooms himself, he goes outside, and he does at least 20 minutes of Tai Chi. I had never done Tai Chi before. I was a martial artist at the time, but I'm watching this guy go, and I think everybody should do Tai Chi. I've never done Tai Chi, but it does seem, I mean, I see every now and again, it's get, it gets pretty popular in parks and whatnot, uh -huh. um, but I think it's something that would benefit everybody in general, yeah. you know, especially old people, but I think everyone can get something out of it. Oh, it's just, it's amazing. And I did take a few Tai Chi classes. And actually, a few years ago, I studied ballet with uh, a teacher who was really amazing. I mean, she had quite a diverse background. And she was also a Tai Chi master. So she would actually include Tai Chi into the ballet class, which is really, that it was brilliant. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant. And some of the dancers really just embraced it, like me, and a few others. And others were like, hey, why are we doing this? Hey, we have to, you know. And so they never came back. And so it was a small group, but, man, it was just powerful. But gentle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, movement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, going back into the kind of the worry mentality, because that is a big part of you. Um, now, you said that earlier you had to fight the stereotype of what the warrior is supposed to be. Like, it's just it's just fighting. It's just aggression. It's just violence. And, you know, especially like for women, you know, because I think that kind of stuff naturally kind of has a, an affinity for young boys and men. But yes. I think it's, it's a, because, you know, it's just, I don't want to get into any of that. It's up for debate of how that, well, how and why that really is. And I don't want to go into that right here, but um, it's much more than that. It is a mindset that I mm -hmm. think that's really where it begins. And so what does it really mean to you? Uh, you know, to me, it is a mindset. It's waking up every day 
and realizing you have a chance to change. You can't change the world. My father actually said that to me one time. He says, you know, you can't change the world. And I said, I know, but I can try just a little bit at a time. And I think that that's what the, the spirit of the warrior means to me is every day that I wake up, I could make myself just a little bit better in some way. And hopefully that will impact somebody else and impact somebody else. And that will start a nice trend of, you know, positive energy and a different way of looking at the world. Because I think we all need, a, you know, I think the world needs a tune up. And I think that if we could just have that warrior spirit and share it with everybody, I think the world would be a better place. So it's not about fighting. It's not about winning and losing. It's about what a warrior really wants more than anything else is to take care of themselves, take care of their families, take care of their communities, take care of the environment, to promote peace and harmony. But again, don't cross the line. Right, right. Do you think the... Uh the adoption of this mentality and discovery of it because of coming out of the medical trauma you experienced. And I have to imagine there's a lot of anger, mm. a, lot of, a lot of resentment that comes with that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because you trust someone and then they violate your trust in such a horrible way. Mm -hmm. You think that helps you kind of deal with that better? Uh, digest and process mm -hmm. the anger. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. And I will admit, I like to, and I wear this badge proudly that I, I really think I do have anger issues. Um, you know, I'm just, it's part of my personality. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, I almost feel sorry for the person, you know, who, who, who did this to me. And I really believe that I'm in a, in a much better place in my life than they are in theirs. And bad things happen to all of us. And I always say that life is full of hits and none of us get, you know, get through life without having our fair share. And these attacks, these hits come in a variety of different ways, not just physical or sexual, it's verbal, it's um, emotional, it's uh, psychological attacks. I mean, the list goes on and on, you know, financial health and being able to either see the hits coming ahead of time so we could just whoop, evade and get out of the way and not get hurt or have the flexibility to be able to absorb the hits when they come and be able to recover from them and actually learn from them and bring ourselves to a higher level level. I think that's per perfectly valid. And, you know, I have my share of anger issues myself, which is why I gain, I think, again, I gravitated towards this kind of thing because, you know, I tried and I tried meditation and I still do kind of meditate. Um, I got heavy into it for a while and then it dropped off. Uh, I've kind of found other modalities that I think kind of work better with my personality because I think just the sitting in one area for 10 or 20 minutes just kind of drives me up a wall. But then again, you know, it's not something that really you have to like anything, you have to really work at that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. maybe I just didn't give it enough of a, an effort to really master it. You know, have you ever tried meditation or anything like that? Oh yes. And I was just an abject failure at it. I'm like mm -hmm. you, I can't, you know, I have ants in my pants. If yeah. I have to sit still and just, you know, kind of like either empty my mind, which it's very busy up here, which is probably why meditation would be a good thing, but I can't. And 
because I love to move, I, I'm also something called a Feldenkrais practitioner. Mm-hmm. And I call Feldenkrais meditation through movement because it, you slow yourself down. You're moving in a way that is so slow, so gentle. Now, to me, that's meditative. And that is mm. something that really helps me. But traditional meditation, and I've talked to so many meditation gurus who want to te- teach me and help me the right way of meditating. But it's like, mm. I think I'm good because I think I found, you know, a way of doing it. Even, um, you know, we do kihon, um, I guess, in other practices they call kata, you know, when mm-hmm. you're practicing without a partner and you're just going through the motions really slowly and stuff. That would not only just really bring me into a meditative state. There was something magical that would happen when I was really focusing on Kihon and doing the movements and just really getting deep inside myself. It was a great way to solve problems. It's like I would just be in this meditative state and then all of a sudden they're doing the movement and then I would go, oh my gosh, that's how I take care of this problem at my office. Or, oh my goodness, this is how, and I'd come up with different solutions. So while you're doing that, it's almost like it's bringing you into a state of creativity we're not even thinking about it, just ideas would just pop into my head. So that was pretty cool. So going on, on uh, Feldenkrais, did I say that right, Feldenkrais? Okay. You did. So, so until I started researching you, I had never heard of anything <laughs> like that before. So one, where does it come from? Um, what's it about? And how did you get into it? Because that's really interesting. Yeah, wow. Well, it's uh, actually uh, the, the creator of the method is Israeli or was Israeli. He was originally from Ukraine and he didn't like the politics there. He didn't like the discrimination that, you know, that he, he was under and stuff. So at the age of 14, he just decided to uh, immigrate to Israel. Well, it was Jerusalem at the time. So he immigrated by himself on foot. So he left Ukraine and started just walking, you know, toward the promised land. And along the way, he would stop and he would work doing um, like, you know, he, he would do like little performances. He was very acrobatic. He was an athlete. He played soccer. And he would even collect people along the way. They would follow him and they would travel with him for several, you know, through several towns and stuff. And then, you know, they'd leave off and he'd pick up more people. It was just crazy. But for many, many months, his family didn't even know where he was. So he definitely had that warrior spirit. Um and then once he got to um, to Israel, he he had an injury, a knee injury from playing soccer. And, you know, he went to therapy. He, you know, tried all different things and finally went to a surgeon. Now, think about this. This is probably in the 1930s. And the surgeon says, well, we can do surgery on your knee. You know, we can fix it. And Moshe Feldenkrais, that was his name. Moshe said, well, what's the success rate? And the surgeon said, eh, about 50-50. So Moshe said, no, thank you. I'm going to figure it out on my own. Now think about what surgery was like, knee surgery in the 30s. Oh, my goodness. So through that self-awareness, through that watching how he was moving, paying attention to how he was moving, what was happening in his knee, he would realize if I hold my shoulder a certain way, it hurts my knee. If I step off a curb a certain way with my foot in this position, it hurts my knee. If I do it another way. So that just started this um, whole movement exploration and self-awareness that he created to fix his knee. And then word in the village got out and people who had knee problems would come to him and say, hey, we hear you fix knees. Can you fix mine? And he never intended to create this method. But because people were coming to him for help, And he was watching human development. His wife was a pediatrician. 
this incredible movement modality came, you know, forth from that experience. Um, it's based on the scientific principle of neuroplasticity. So for the listeners, that's just a fancy way of saying that our brain, our bodies, our nervous system is capable of learning new pathways, new ways of moving, sensing, feeling, and thinking during the entire course of our lifetime. That's a no-brainer, of course. That makes perfect sense. But when I was in physical therapy school, we were told that this neuroplasticity disappeared at the age of 14. Can you believe that? That's so stupid. But Moshe was years ahead of his time. So the, the method... Um, there's no right or wrong, no good or bad, no better or worse, just opportunities to learn. So it takes all of that pressure off that you have to perform or you have to be good at something. It's just really getting deep into your body and really exploring those gentle movements. Like I was saying with the uh, Kihon, getting down on the floor and doing a Feldenkrais awareness through movement lesson is incredibly powerful. And people don't realize at first the change that's going in them. I took my first Feldenkrais workshop. Uh, you know, I just went all in. It was a three-day workshop, um, Feldenkrais for Dancers. And I think I was probably in my late 40s at the time. I was, you know, still going through the PTSD and all that stuff. And after that first day, I knew I had to become a practitioner. I had no idea what we were doing. I had no idea what was happening. But I know, knew that I felt lighter and less burdened and my movements felt easier than I had in a really long time. So I ended up, um, when I said, it's a four-year training program. A lot of times you have to travel to different cities. The training is two weeks at a time. So it's two weeks every three months for four years. That's a lot of time missing work. So I couldn't do it unless they brought one to Denver. And about a year or two later, they brought a training to Denver. And I was the first one to sign up. So it was truly, truly amazing. It was an amazing experience. And I mean, I use it every single day, just like I use martial arts in my life every single day. So I always tell people that Feldenkrais for me, what it did for me was it lengthened my legs, it loosened my hips, it strengthened my spine, and it opened my heart. And when you put that together with just starting that martial arts training so that the martial arts and the Feldenkrais training were coming together and just one was really exacerbating the, or, you know, the other, it's like expo exponential type of growth. And the most amazing thing is that Moshe Feldenkrais was a judo expert. Okay. So he was a martial artist and martial arts and the principle of martial arts is threaded all the way through Feldenkrais, something I couldn't see at first when I first started training, but it took a couple, it took about a year and it's like, aha, I get it now. So how would someone how would someone find something like this? I mean, because you know, like I say, I'd never heard of it. Well, you know, I would recommend going to the um, Feldenkrais Guild of North America. There is a website, the FGNA, um, and so you know you can learn a lot about it, or just you know look up Moshe Feldenkrais. When I first started doing that, that was a long time ago. We didn't have such you know information like we do now on the internet. Um, so that's the best way to start to research it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. It's just kind of a, I mean, like I said, this is kind of the reason why I do these podcasts because I always come across something that I'd never heard of or something that I didn't know it was out there. I was like, mm -hmm. they must not advertise very much because I just, you know, I'm, I'm always in these spaces and I just never hear it. Maybe I just don't take notice of it. 
No, you know, it depends on where you're at. Um, you know, we would hear a lot about Feldenkrais in Denver and Boulder. So I heard about Feldenkrais years before I even started training. And I think that's because, um, especially, you know, Boulder and uh, Denver, but especially Boulder, is really into alternative type of, of healing methods and different mm -hmm. modalities and stuff, much more so, I think, um, even than Denver was at first. And Moshe actually went to Boulder um, and did some teaching there. Well, you know, it, obviously years ago in the 70s. And so that's where it became very popular in Denver and Boulder. And there were a lot of people who went through the training and studied with Moshe who are still here in town. Um, so I think it depends on the part of the country that you are in. If you're in New York, you know, you've heard about it. Uh, San Francisco, it's very popular there because that was kind of like the hub of where a lot of their trainings were. Um, mm. it, but it's, it's when someone hears the word Feldenkrais, not everybody goes running to embrace it. It's like, what is this? You know, a lot of people think, is this a cult? Is this, but it's just, it's an incredible, beautiful, beautiful method and such a gift that he left the world. Right. I mean, I'm just kind of thinking that uh, in comparison to something like Pilates, who hasn't heard of Pilates, even right. if you don't practice it. I mean, right. it just, it got very, it got very commercialized mm -hmm. years and years ago. And uh, it's just something like Feldenkrais. I've just, it, it Apparently, I mean, it's been around for a very long time, but apparently just never picked up the way Pilates did. I, I actually have, I don't want to, you know, put a plug in and stop me if, the, if this is inappropriate. But if you go to my website, you'll get an automatic pop-up that if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can get these three pre-recorded meditation through movement lessons that you can download. There's three of them. They're 20 minutes long. I call it meditation through movement. But it's mm -hmm. actually Feldenkrais because I figured if I says, hey, you can have these, you know, Feldenkrais lessons, people are going to go, what's that? Oh, it sounds creepy. I don't want to do this. But it is. It's meditation through movement. Yeah. And that's actually yeah. I'm teaching. I teach on Sunday afternoons at a dance studio um, and we didn't call it Feldenkrais. We called it body rehab. That's because, much more digestible. <laughs> yeah, because people, oh, I, they've heard of body rehab. Mm -hmm. So now I'm starting to use the F word with them because they've been, you know, <laughs> studying with me long enough and they now they're really curious about Feldenkrais. So it's okay for me to use that that word. So you don't have your studio anymore. You had it for 18 years, you said, and then you, you closed it down in 2017. So what do you mo mainly do with your time now? Oh, I do my podcast. I um, I'm writing my next book. Um, I'm dancing and I'm doing martial arts. And so that's basically what I'm doing. I started knitting again. Okay. So that's a big thing. And, uh, yeah, so that's what I do. And it seems like I'm always busy, busy, busy. I'm even busier now than when I was, when I had my practice, but I think it's because I've got my, I have the freedom to have my foot in a lot of different, you know, doors and, and a lot of different communities that, um, I'm, I'm, you know, involved in. Is, is the new book the uh, Reluctant Ninja, or is that the one, or is it something no, else? No, the Reluctant Ninja was released in March. Okay. I'm working on a follow-up book calling Secrets, I'm calling it Secrets of a Warrior Queen. So it's nice. basically taking the philosophies, the um, life lessons, the characteristics of a warrior and a ninja, so other people, especially women, can take some of these, um, you know, these, uh, like a self-help, 
to be able to find their own warrior spirit without having to step into a smelly dojo and um, studying you know, with a bunch of sweaty men for 20 years like I have worked out for me, but I know a lot of people don't want to do that. So that's basically the next one. And I'm also working on uh, family history. Family history. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you mean like a, a genealogy tree going back? That kind of thing. Well, it's mostly it's more stories, more storytelling, okay. because I do, you know, I knew all four of my grandparents. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, I was in my I was 37 when my last living grandparent passed away. And I know stories of like two sets of great grandparents. And I have some of this stuff already written down and I have a lot of research to do. But, you know, I'm it might actually end up being like a, a trilogy, but I'm not really mm -hmm. sure yet. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Cheryl, we kind of cover a lot of ground here in the hour or so that we've been speaking here. So one thing I like to do with people is because we talk about so much, uh, it can be hard to keep track of it. I like to, as a closing tradition, I like to ask people, if you could have people remember, I like to ask you, if you could have people remember one thing about any, about this podcast, one thing that you want them to walk away that you said, if nothing else, what would it be? That would be that your body has an, an incredible capacity to heal itself. And don't let anybody else put labels on you because you can do anything you want to at any stage of life and you can heal from anything. I know it doesn't seem like it at first when you're going through it, but believe me, there's always a path to healing and keep an open mind and don't give up. There you go. No better message than that, folks. Just keep the faith. Eyes on the prize, right? <laughs> All right. Well, um, Cheryl, uh, thank you so much. Thanks for joining me on a Sunday. And thanks for, your, thanks for your breadth of knowledge and your, and your insights. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it. Yeah, another problem, another problem. Okay, folks, well, that is, this, that is a wrap on this edition of Fitness Reborn. Again, my name is Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training. Uh, my guest today is Cheryl I Love, just like that, I Love. And uh, I'll put information in the show notes, as always, uh, how you can get a hold of her, um, her website, social media, that sort of thing. And um, get in contact her, with her if you want. If you're look, looking to have more information on Feldenkrais, I know I kind of am. Um, that'll be in there as well. So until next time, folks. Um, and also, if you... If got value out of this podcast, please consider giving a review on the Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. It does help us along. It does help increase the visibility of the podcast, and I would really appreciate it. And uh, don't also forget that I have courses of my own that I'm offering that are meant to help with common deficits in strength, coordination, neuromuscular functioning, neuroplasticity. Now that kind of, you heard that right here on this podcast, but check mm -hmm. those out. They'll be available as well. But until next time, thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can become a supporter of the show by becoming a monthly subscriber. No commitments, cancel anytime. Every little bit helps, and I'd sure love your support. Also, you can click any of the links to our social media platforms provided in the show notes, and you can email me at renfitnesswarriors at gmail.com. That's ren, R-E-N, fitnesswarriors at gmail.com. If you got a fitness story to tell, I'd love to hear it. And you never know, you might just find yourself on the show. Until next time, train hard. Peace.